Our sermon today is taken from 1 Peter 4, verse 12 to 19. This is the word of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you might also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone but let suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Thus says Lord. Amen. Let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, uh, we thank you that you're not only our sovereign Lord and creator, Father, you've made all things out of nothing. You've created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in it such that no one could move without you. But you've also displayed to us that you are a loving father who sent his only son in Christ Jesus, Father. He went through the greatest fiery trials, Father, so that we might not be consumed by the fires when we go through our own fiery trials, so that we might persevere. And so that when we go through these trials, Father, we can entrust ourselves to the creator of God. So, Father, help us focus. Help us see the beauties of this passage. Help us worship you in this passage and encourage us as we go through this passage. Make me be clear and help the gospel be clear here today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, welcome again to Covenant City Church. We're continuing our series this week in the book of 1 Peter. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, pericope or paragraph by paragraph in this book. And we're coming along here towards the end of 1 Peter. And here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19, he's again encouraging you and encouraging Christians who are undergoing suffering, who are undergoing persecutions, different kinds of social um, alienation and all kinds of suffering to endure to suffer well, to see that their suffering is not meaningless, to be able to suffer without actually ending up to disobey God. And actually, in this seemingly simple passage that consoles you, that encourages you to suffer well, he actually weaves out a lot of theology in it, a lot of theology, a lot of uh, the summarizing of the whole letter, actually. It takes place in this particular pericope in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. There are three things I want to point out from this passage. First, what suffering is for, second, what to do when suffering, and third, the power to handle suffering. So first, what is suffering for? Notice in verse 12, it says this, it describes suffering as a fiery trial. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Suffering in this passage is being described here as a fiery trial. A trial, a fiery trial here, is meant to do at least two things according to this passage. The first thing it's meant to do is supposed to expose and reveal what's really beneath your character, what's really inside of you. The second thing it's going to do is going to be dividing and distinguishing true believers from non-believers. So the first thing a fiery trial does here is exposing who you really are. 
a fiery trial here is suffering. In other words, there's something about suffering that causes us to see who you really are on the inside out. This passage is saying, you don't really know who you are until you undergo suffering. So that when suffering comes, when you go through the suffering, all the stuff on the inside, that starts to come out. We might have a self-knowledge of who we are before the suffering, but it's not only until we go through the suffering that we really see who we truly are, right? So the fiery trial here is referring back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. Turn there with me if you have your Bibles open before you. In 1 Peter 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, it says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that... Here's the purpose of the trials. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the same language. Suffering is a kind of testing that is putting you through the fire so that the genuineness of your faith right, will be proven, will be vindicated, will be, will be seen for what it truly is. The imagery here is like putting an ore into the fire and seeing whether there's gold on the inside. And as the, the ore is put into the fire, right, the fire purifies it and all the dross comes out to see whether or not there's gold on the inside it. In the same way, maybe a sword will be put through the fire by a blacksmith so that all the impurities of the sword will come out and will come out as sharper, will come out as shinier, so that what's really there will be really be shown. But if an ore has no gold on the inside, it's just going to be consumed. And the sword is an impure sword. It's just going to be consumed. So there's something about suffering that exposes who you really are. And if you truly are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's going to really show that this is who you are. But if you're not a believer, if you're made up of dross, there's something about suffering, the pressures of suffering, that it's like a fire that will simply consume, right? So suffering reveals who you truly are. One of the, my favorite examples that's, that's communicating that kind of thing is in the movie Titanic. Remember the old movie, right? Where you saw in, in, in that movie aristocrats who were rich and they were going around in the boat. They were the higher upper class and they were enjoying their meals. And Billy Zane was one of the characters there who was the love interest for Kate Winslet before Leonardo DiCaprio came into the picture and so forth. The rich aristocrats in the Titanic boat, right? They were seeing themselves as higher than thou, above the servants. They were seeing themselves as the poised, the classy, those who are uh, ed educated and smart and higher than everybody else. And that's what they seemed like they were until the boat started sinking. And we saw those scenes where the higher people, the, the, the captains, those who were poised and classy, they were the ones who were pushing women and children out of the way. They were forcing themselves into the lifeboat. They were putting themselves first. Suddenly, they weren't the patient, poised, class people that they thought they were. When the boat started sinking, who they really were on the inside started to show itself. And here's a Christian understanding of humanity. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's who we really are on the inside out. But if you had become a Christian, this new life was brought inside you. You're regenerated. The Bible says you're given a new heart, but even though this new heart delights in God and wants to worship God, wants to obey God, this new heart continues to struggle deep inside it with the flesh, with the sinful desires of the old self, with, with who you were before you were a Christian, so that there's a struggle within you. And here's what this text is saying. If you're going through suffering, 
Suffering is like a fiery trial that will make this new life within you appear all the more glorious, will make this new life within you be manifesting itself and showing forth itself to the world. So when you go through suffering and when you're pressed down, what comes out is not jealousy or bitterness or resentfulness, but a Christ-like love that says, I'm not going to repay my enemy what my enemy's been doing back to me. I'm not going to become bitter and resentful when I'm suffering. I'm going to continue to obey God even when I'm suffering. So when suffering happens, who you really are as a Christian begins to appear, begins to arise, and it's going to hurt. There's nothing about going through fire that isn't going to hurt, right? But how you react to it will reveal who you are. But if you're not a Christian and you go through suffering, that's how you also become exposed. Suffering, in other words, creates a kind of fork in the road that either makes you or breaks you, that either vindicates you or shows you and will cause you to crumble. Two famous biblical examples about this, right? First is the book of Job. Remember the book of Job? In the opening chapters of the book of Job, it says that Job had a beautiful family. Job was rich. He had a lot of cattle. He had a lot of servants. He had a lot of property under him. He had a lot of children, uh, beautiful daughters, beautiful sons. And then so... Job, as well, was a faithful worshiper of God, the Bible says. But as Job was worshiping God, Satan looked at Job, and Satan told God this. Do you really think Job loves you for you, God? Do you really think that he's worshiping you for nothing? Job only worships you because of the gifts that you've given him. Take away his family, take away his property, take away all of his things, he will curse you. He's going to abandon you. Remember what God said. You really believe this about my servant Job? Go ahead. Take away all those things, and we'll see. And that's exactly what Satan did. In a series of unfortunate events that seemingly were random, Job's property was taken away, his sons were taken away. But then after all those things, Job cried out to the Lord and said, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed still be is the name of the Lord. And the Bible says in Job chapter 1, the end of it, Job continued to obey God, and in this, he did not sin. And then Satan came back to God and said, yeah, 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 but that's just his family and property. But let me take away his health, too. And God says, okay, take away his health. And then what happened? Job was covered with sores and both all over his body, and then Job continued to worship God. And Job said, shall we worship God only in good times and not in bad times? And the Bible continues to say, he committed no sin. So that when suffering hits, his true faith was vindicated before God and Satan. But remember what happened to his wife. His wife turned to Job, seeing that they've lost everything, and said to Job, are you still keeping your integrity? Curse God and die. See, when suffering hits, what did he end up doing? He continued to worship God. When suffering hits, it exposed the fact that his wife didn't have the same kind of faith that he did. Now, was Job made righteous because he went through the suffering, or was he proven to be righteous even because before the suffering, but because of the suffering, he was, his righteousness was vindicated? It's surely the latter. The, the suffering didn't make him righteous. The suffering vindicated the fact that he was already a true believer in the first place, right? So just suffering revealed who you really are on the inside. It exposed Job as vindicated and exposed his wife as not vindicated. The other example of this is, of course, Peter himself, the author of this book. Who was Peter in the Gospels? As you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter was always the loudest disciple. He had an incredibly high view of himself. 
when Jesus asked the disciples whether or not they were loyal, Peter was the first one to say, many other people might betray you, O Lord, but I will never betray you. I'm never going to do that, right? Peter was always the most zealous one. Peter was always the one that acted first. He was the one that cut off the servant's ear when they apprehended Jesus. But then, when it finally sunk in that Jesus was going to be crucified, and Peter was tested, three times he denied Jesus. He went through the fiery trial, and then he was exposed. His high view of himself crumbled. Because he went through the fiery trials, his high view of himself completely shattered, and he saw who he really was on the inside. He wasn't the valiant, pure, high-minded disciple that he thought he was. He was a sinner just like everybody else. And it broke him. It tore him to shreds. He wept, and then he saw, I'm not the Savior. Jesus is. And then he saw, I'm not strong. I'm completely and utterly weak. And that's what suffering is doing here. It's either going to make you or break you, so it it reveals who you are. So verse 12 says it's a fiery trial. But this fiery trial in verse 12 doesn't just expose who you are when you go through suffering. It also divides, right? Look at verse 17 in this passage. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become the ungodly and the sinner? Now, this is an interesting passage. The word judgment here is actually uh, the same connotations, has the same connotations as the word trial in verse 12. The word judgment here, in other words, doesn't mean condemnation, all right? It just means that Christians and non-Christians will go through the same kinds of sufferings, will go through the same kinds of judgments. Uh, in the modern world today, we, t- we tend to think of judgment simply as condemnation. People say, you shouldn't be judging people. What they mean by that normally is you shouldn't be condemning other people. You shouldn't think yourself as pridefully higher than other people. But the word judgment here isn't about condemnation. The word is a, it's a generic word. It's simply... Uh, the, the word's connotation, the word's meaning is simply about adjudication, about defining, about distinguishing, seeing what you really are. When you're, when you're judging food in front of you, you're seeing which food is really good, which food is bad, right? So this is a process of adjudication. This fiery trial exposes who you are and therefore reveals who's truly a believer and who's not a believer. But Christian and non-Christian have to go through it. And they have to go through it. And as you go through the fire trial, you're either going to come out as vindicated, your wheat and not chaff, your sheep and not goat, or you're going to be revealed to still be a sinner and you don't have the life of God within you. Now, think back about two weeks ago when we discussed the role of Noah in the book of 1 Peter, right? What was the flood in Noah's day? The flood in Noah's day was a kind of water trial, was a water ordeal, right? When the waters of the flood came in Noah's day, there was a sense in which it vindicated Noah. Noah was glad and was pleased that finally the waters came, right? Why? Because all this time, he was obeying God, he was making the ark faithfully even though nobody else was listening to him, he was proclaiming a message of salvation, get into this ark if you want to be saved, right? He was continuing to obey God even while people disbelieved him. So that when the flood came, it actually vindicated him. The flood came vindicating that Noah's faith was right, his actions were right, his message was right. But the same flood that ended up vindicating Noah 
was the very flood that condemned the others around Noah. The same trial that vindicated one group was the very same trial that, that, that condemned and indicted the other group. So it's the same way with suffering. Suffering will expose you, it will either vindicate you, or it will break you. It will show who you truly are on the inside. And Christian and non-Christian, you're both going to go through this. Sufferings in life will come. How will you respond? Will you respond by lashing out, or will you continue to respond in gladness? So that's the first point. What's suffering for? Suffering reveals and suffering divides and distinguishes. Second point. What to do then when suffering? At least four things that we got to point out here from this passage, but what to do during suffering. And all these four things have to do with looking to Jesus again. What are these four things? Understand the present, look to the future, point back to the past, and then look up to the creator. So first, understand the present. If we're going to handle suffering well, we need to understand the present times. Look again at verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised. That's a command. Expect suffering to come, in other words. Do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is not something out of the normalcy in this present evil times. Suffering will come before you. But notice how Peter prefaces it. He calls the suffering Christian beloved. But at the same time says to them, do not be surprised. What is he saying here? Understand that in the present moment, your status as being loved by God doesn't nullify or negate the fact that you will still go through fiery trials and sufferings. These two things are not contradictory. You're loved on the one hand, but you'll go through fiery trials on the other hand. And you might think to yourself, this is completely contradictory. This seems to be completely paradoxical. It doesn't seem to make sense. And in fact, the prosperity gospel capitalizes on that intuition. The prosperity gospel denies this logic. They would say, because you're beloved, you should never be suffering. Because you're beloved, you should never be sick. Because you're beloved, you should never go through any kind of fiery trials and sufferings and temptations. The prosperity gospel oftentimes makes a direct line between how we would love people and how God loves us, right? They would often say in their rhetoric this, well, if you had a friend that you loved, if you had a spouse or a child that you loved, wouldn't you want them to never go through pain and suffering? Wouldn't you always want them to be healthy and happy? But you are also a child of God. How much more does God want you to be healthy and wealthy? Notice the theological reasoning there. Notice how the pattern of reasoning is happening. They're drawing an analogy between how we love one another to how God loves. They're making a deduction, an inference between the way we love and then inferring that and imposing that upon God. That's a bottom-up theology. That's deducing things about God on the basis of human experience rather than actually seeing that God defines himself in his word. God revealed himself in his word. We have no right to claim that God's love is just like ours. Rather, we should go and look at his word and see how he loved us and define it on those bases. We need a top-down approach. But it's exactly what happened in Christ's life, wasn't it? Who was Jesus, if not the one who was beloved by God? The Spirit descended upon him, the Father's voice talked about him, and said to everybody, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. What happened next? A life of glory, a life of comfort, 
a life of lavishness. No, Jesus lived the, and he went through the worst trials. He went through the worst sufferings. Yet he was beloved. And understand the present time, O Christian, we could be completely shocked when suffering comes. And we, think, we, thought, we could think to ourselves, I thought I'm a Christian now. Doesn't this mean that God loves me? Doesn't mean that God loves me in Christ Jesus? Why am I still suffering? This, this Christianity thing, that's not for me. You're not understanding the present times. You're not seeing that in the present moment, you're being loved by God doesn't mean that you're exempt from suffering, but precisely because you're beloved, there will be a time of fiery trials before you, just as it happened to Jesus. And if he suffered, and he was the one who was most beloved by God, how can we think we're exempt from suffering? So understand the present, and don't be surprised when suffering hits. So that's the first thing, understand the present. The second thing is look to the future. This is in verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now in this little verse, this, it's actually a very densely theological statement, this little verse, right? It says here that you should rejoice in your sufferings because your sufferings is somehow a sharing in Jesus' sufferings, so that you may also be rejoiced and be glad when his glory is revealed. The practical implication in the command is clear. Put your hope in the future, the future glory when Jesus comes back, that's when your glory too is revealed, right? But the basis of that command of putting our hope in the future, of pointing to the future glory that attends to us, is the fact that the logic of Peter here is, what happened to Jesus will also happen to you. Throughout the whole of the New Testament, that's the theme. Jesus' life will become yours, and because Jesus is your representative, his sequence of life, his pattern of life, will become your pattern of life. And what was Jesus' pattern of life? It wasn't from one degree of comfort to another degree of glory. It was always a movement from suffering to glory. It was always a movement of humiliation to exaltation. Look back to, again to 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse, verse 11. Look at what it says there. What did the Old Testament say about the life of Jesus? The Old Testament inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Jesus' life was patterned and sequenced in a very particular way. He came, he suffered, humiliated, and he was dead, put on a cross, and then he received glory. And what Peter here is saying is, because you are now in Christ, his life becomes your life. Because he is your head. What happens to him will become what will happen to you. If he suffered and died, and then he went to glory, and you have seen him resurrected, Peter is saying, you too can expect suffering in this life. So if you're suffering, rejoice. Your life is becoming more and more like Christ. And that means that you too will be resurrected into glory like him. Look to the future, O Christian. Your resurrection is just as clear as Christ's resurrection. His life is your life. He was the forerunner. He was first among many so that you could go through the same kinds of sufferings and at the same time go through it and then ended up exalted like he was. So we're Christians to undergo suffering. We have to understand the presence, look to the future glory, not the present glory, but the future glory. The third thing is we have to look back to the past. This is in verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
And then skip ahead to verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. To, for you to suffer well, we need to recognize our, our identity has an inherently past-looking reference. Our identity as a Christian means that we're constantly pointing back to the Christ, right? Now, where did the name Christian first even begin to come from? Historians would tell you that in the first and second centuries, when Christians started coming around and they started claiming things like Jesus was resurrected, that the tomb was empty, we saw him, we touched him, we, we ate with him, they didn't actually call themselves Christians. They called themselves people of the way or people of the book, referring to Jesus' claims about him being the way, the truth, and the life. They were followers of the way. And what historians would say is that the term Christians or the name Christian wasn't actually given to Christians by themselves. It wasn't as if they went around and started calling themselves Christians. But rather this term was actually circulated and begun by people outside the church. People outside the church were using the term to shame them. Uh, one historian actually said the term Christian is synonymous by, with calling somebody a lackey for a criminal, a follower of a suffering criminal who died a terrible and gruesome death. It was the social equivalent of calling people today freaks. It created a social stigma. You don't want to be associated with those Christians, right? And in fact, if you're associated with the Christians, they blame you for all sorts of things. If famine or war happened in Rome, people would start to blame the Christians. Why? Because Christians refused to worship the God of Rome. Christians refused to worship all the different gods of the ages. They said, we only have one God. We're not going to worship those gods. So when suffering comes, when war hits, when pestilence and famine hits the land, what do people say? The gods are angry at us, and it's the Christians' fault. Are you a Christian? You're causing all these things. Are you a Christian? Not only that, Christians were accused of being incestuous because we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And we held love feasts, which is just a Lord's Supper. Christians were antisocial. Christians were also abandoning their family gods. And Christians, therefore, were this social outcast. They were getting persecuted and persecuted. You did not want to be associated with the name Christians. And that's why Peter is saying here, if you're insulted for the name of Christ... If anyone suffers as a Christian, in other words, if you're bearing the name of Christ, let him not be ashamed. Why is he saying that? Because if you're being called a Christian, the purpose of the name as coined in the first and second centuries was actually to put you to shame. You don't want to be associated with the Christians. Be ashamed of them. Divorce yourself from them. Get away from them. Don't be associated with them. Here's what Peter's saying. If anyone calls you a Christian, Wear it on your sleeve. Tell the world, this is the wonderful opportunity for you. Oh, Christian, if somebody calls you a Christian, a follower of Jesus, redeemed by the Messiah, what does the word Christ mean? Christ simply means the anointed Messiah, the Redeemer. Oh, Christian, people are insulting you by calling you Christian. Wear it on your sleeve and use it as, what? as a way to what? Let him glorify God in that name at the end of verse 16. Let him not be ashamed if you're called a Christian, in other words, but let him glorify God in that name. If people mock you by calling you a Christian, bear it and wear it proudly. 
Because this is a perfect opportunity for you to glorify God, to make God's name great, in other words. If people are calling you Christian, in other words, this is a way for you to witness to them. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I belong not to myself, but Christ and Christ alone. Yes, I couldn't be my own savior. Yes, Jesus Christ was my savior. He was my redeemer. Yes, I couldn't be righteous on my own. He had to be righteous on my behalf. Yes, I'm a Christian. I was weak. I was a sinner. But God came down in the name of Jesus Christ so that anyone who would now bow the knee to him and believe in him can be saved. Here's the irony. You're insulted as a Christian. That's a wonderful opportunity for you to preach the gospel. That's a great opportunity for you to preach the gospel. You know, I, I loved that I went to seminary and then I did postgraduate work in theology because it's an immediate conversation starter, right? Like, so what do you do for a living? I preach and I teach. What, what, what were you doing as a student? I taught, I mean, I, 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 I believed in theology. I, I studied theology. And then people were like, what, so you pray all day? Like, what do you do? Like, uh, you fast, you know? Is it like a three-year-long three retreat? I'm like, no, no, no. It simply means that I study the Bible. And it's a perfect gateway for us to, to, to get people talking about the truth of the gospel. Friends, I don't know if you're afraid to bear the name of Christ. I still hear about people even getting stressed out about posting Bible verses on Instagram. I'm like, hey, if you're worried about Instagram stigma, <laughs> let's, let's read First Peter together, right? Because... because Friends, to believe in Jesus is precisely to feel and wear it on your sleeve that you were weak and you couldn't do it in yourself. It's, it's precisely to confess that you're not strong and that God is. It's precisely to confess that you're not your own savior, that you're not righteous, you're not better than anyone else and God is. What a perfect opportunity to glorify God in that name. So that you're glorifying God not by making yourself look good, you're glorifying God precisely by seeing and showing to people who you are in light of how great he is, and that makes you look really small. That's how you glorify God. Not by a lavish lifestyle, not by a life of comfort, not by showing off about your credentials and your accomplishments and your CV, but precisely by confessing to people, Jesus Christ is my savior. Here I stand, I could do no other. He is a great savior. Finally, so we're not only pointing back to the past of who Jesus is as we bear the name Christian, we're also supposed to keep obeying by looking up. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here's what verse 19 is recognizing. If you're suffering, it is so easy to use that suffering simply as an excuse to stop obeying. Right? If you're suffering, there's something about suffering that causes you to be so myopically focused on your suffering, so preoccupied with your own suffering, that you end up sulking, that you end up getting more and more bitter, and then you use an excuse simply to stop obeying. You know what? I'm suffering so much. I'm going through a financial reversal. I'm going through a breakup. My family is breaking apart, whatever it might be. I'm too tired to read the Bible. I'm too tired to go to church. I don't want to meet people and go to a community group. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to go on Sunday mornings. I need to sleep more. I need to rest more. And conversely, it's also easy to justify your sins because of your suffering. 
You know, I've lost count of how many people say that, that as we're talking about the sin of pornography, for example, how people see pornography as a way out to reward themselves because they tell themselves, I've had such a tough week, I just need a way out. I just need a little cheap gratification to reward myself after a tough week. Or when people commit adulteries and then they're asked afterwards, I just felt like I deserved it. I mean, I just needed a way out. I just needed this little kick, a boost. There's something about suffering that causes you not only want to stop obeying God, but it excuses your own disobediences. So that Peter is reminding you here, and when you're suffering, continue to look up at God. He's, rema- He's still your creator, so continue to do good. And that doing good there points us back to verse 15 that we skipped over just now. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Now, why does Peter talk about murdering, stealing, general evils, and meddling here? Well, I think what he's trying to get at here is that these are the kinds of things that you're going to be tempted to do when people are persecuting you, when you suffer, when you suffer losses. If people are persecuting you, people are attacking you, you're going to be tempted to attack back. Don't be a murderer. If people are stealing away your resources and destroying what you have, you're going to be tempted to steal back. Become a thief yourself. Retaliate so that you're always repaying evil for evil or you become a meddler, right? Uh, which is striking. Meddler simply means don't be a busybody. There's something about suffering that causes us to become busybodies, right? David Brooks in his book, Second Mountain, says that when you're facing existential dread, there's something about you that, that kicks you into, into, into meddling mode where you're trying to get into other people's affairs because you want to be included again. You want to be socially accepted again so that you stop minding your own business and you get into other people's business because you want to be so, so desperately accepted by them. That's exactly what Peter is doing here. If you're suffering, make sure that you're suffering because you're doing what's right. Don't compound your suffering with just suffering. Don't compound your suffering with a guilty conscience. Don't dilute your witness by fighting evil with evil. Continue to do good, even when suffering might tempt you to stop obeying God. Well, how in the world do we do that? How do we suffer like that? How do we suffer in such a way where we're expecting the sufferings in the present day so we're not shocked by it? How do we suffer in such a way where our hope is completely anchored in the present and in the future life, the glory to come, so that whatever happens here won't touch our inheritance? How do we feel that deep within us? How do we suffer in such a way that we're always pointing back to the greatness of our Christ and we're always looking up and continually obeying and enduring under the weight of stress and suffering? Well, third... The power to handle suffering, actually, this third point, comes in verse 15 from this little term there, the spirit of glory. Notice in verse 14, again, it says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is how you handle suffering, Peter is saying. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of glory is fueling you, is emblazing you with the resources that you need to suffer well. But that's an interesting term for the spirit of glory. Because you wouldn't think that he would use this title, right? If, if you're wanting to comfort somebody who's suffering, there are other terms for the Holy Spirit. The spirit was called in John 16 as the comforter. The spirit was also called the helper or the teacher, the one who comes alongside you, the paraclete, right? The spirit, in other words, that's called so many different ways in, throughout the New Testament and the Bible, 
why specifically the spirit of glory and of God here? What about the spirit of glory and of God here? Well, if we look back, right, in the Old Testament, the spirit of glory is always manifesting itself as a kind of fire, right? The spirit of God and spirit of glory is the very presence of God in its most intense manifestation on earth. And it always shows up as a fire. It first showed up, right? Think about Exodus chapter 3. Moses and the burning bush, or rather the unburning bush. God shows up before Moses. Moses is completely fearful, and that's exactly what happens when the Spirit of God appears in the Old Testament. The Spirit shows up. God shows up. Everybody falls to the floor. Everybody's just utterly terrified. They can't get close because we're sinners. And so this fire appeared on this bush, and then out of the bush came a voice. The Lord said to Moses, take off your sandals, for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. And Moses came close. And what did he see about this unburning bush? There's this fire on this bush, but the bush was not consumed. That's a paradox, because the spirit of glory represented in the fire should be consuming the bush. If you're seeing a bush on fire, the fire thrives on the bush being consumed. The fire ought to be consuming the bush, but the bush isn't consumed. And as God was speaking to Moses out of this unburning bush, God saying to Moses, I will be with my people. And what's that foreshadowing? God is saying there will come a time when my presence will be so close with my people that I will be with them, and though my fire ought to consume them, though my fire should burn them up because we're all sinners, we're not righteous, they won't be consumed. They will be in the fire, but they'll be vindicated in the fire. You see, that's the foreshadowing of the unburning bush. And then we fast forward. What happened in Pentecost? Jesus Christ was ascended into heavens, showing that his sacrifice for righteousness' sake was accepted and approved by God. Remember, the temple was then torn into two. The walls of the temple were torn into two. That's where the fire of God used to dwell. When the walls of the temple were torn into two, and Jesus ascended unto God the Father and sat at the right hand, showing that his work was finished, and the Holy Spirit was sent in Pentecost, what was above every early Christian? Tongues of fire. The spirit of glory again descended upon Christians, and though they were engulfed in flames, they were not consumed. And for that moment, it represented visibly what was going on internally. Now suddenly, because of what Jesus Christ had done, this fiery presence of God that was outside of you, something that was always terrifying to you, could suddenly now dwell inside you and be with you and fuel you and cause you to continue to obey and not consume you. You see, friends, how do we get through the suffering that we go through here today? How do we go through the fiery trials and not be consumed by the fire? if we have the fire of God within us. And the only reason why we have the fire of God within us is because Jesus Christ took the greater fiery trial for you. Jesus Christ took the greater fiery trial for you. He took the fire of the wrath of God so that when the fire fell on him, it consumed him and wouldn't have to consume you. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is in Daniel chapter three. Remember what happened in Daniel chapter 3? Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was uh, uh, living in Babylon in exile. So the Israelites were under exile under Babylon at the time, under Babylonian rule, under the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar erected a golden statue of himself and commanded everybody 
to worship the statue, to bow the knee to the statue. And Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by the way, wonderful names, right? I love it. They, they, they refused to bow in the statue. And what happened? Nebuchadnezzar got angry, told the soldiers to round them up, capture them, and to throw them in a literal fiery furnace. But remember what happened? When they were thrown in the fiery furnace, somehow the fire couldn't touch them. It says that the fire was all around them, but they remained totally unscathed. And Nebuchadnezzar got so angry, he got so irked by this, that he said, turn the volume of the fire up, turn the heat up, make it so hot in there. And they turned it up, and it still didn't touch them, but yet all the soldiers around them died. The same fire that vindicated Sajak, Meshach, and Abednego's faith consumed everybody around them. And when Nebuchadnezzar looked in, what did he see? Why were they not consumed? The soldiers reported back, and they said, Sir, there's a fourth person in there, someone who was like the Son of God. And then when the fire was turned down, only the three of them came out, but the fourth person didn't come out. This one was the Son of God, who was a foreshadow of the greater incarnation. When Jesus Christ took on flesh, and when he stayed on the cross, he was consumed by the fire of God's wrath. So that when you go through your fiery trials here today, you could come out not consumed, but vindicated. You can rejoice in your sufferings because you can say, because Jesus took the fire that was meant for me, I can go through these fires and not be consumed, but rather be purified. The spirit of glory lives in me. This is your hope, O Christian. Rest in this. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have taken the greater fires for us, the fire that comes from God himself so that we might go through the fiery trials that the world th throws at us today. Help us live in this promise. Help us put our hope in the future glory that is to come, in the resurrection of the body. Help us trust you, the good creator, in this evil and sad world. And help us always cling to the cross. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.